As you find your seats, go ahead and find a copy of God's Word and begin to locate the book of Habakkuk. As I said last week, Habakkuk, if you prefer that. Listen to an older British preacher this week who kept saying Habakkuk, so it, it might come out today a few times. So uh, begin to find Habakkuk. If you uh, don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the chair uh, in front of you. Um, feel free to use your table of contents. It can be a tough one to track down. Three-chapter book, kind of buried in the Old Testament, there with the rest of the minor prophets. Uh, as always, if you need a Bible or know someone who does, take one of those hardback Bibles as our gift to you. Uh, we, we've got plenty of them. We'd love for you to have that. Uh, if you missed last week, we're in week two of a four-week journey uh, through this little-known prophet. Um, as I said last week, I just mentioned a second ago, Habakkuk falls in the category of being a minor prophet. Which is not about length, I mean, uh, which is about length, not substance, okay? When they say minor, it's just because it's short. Isaiah is a major prophet because he's lengthy. Habakkuk, if you were here last week or if you've uh, dove into it, you know it is by no means minor on substance. Habakkuk addresses some of the most um, profound questions in the world, in all of life, throughout uh, history. Uh, if you've ever thought or even out loud asked if if God is so good and so powerful, then why are things so uh, bad? If you've ever asked that, Habakkuk speaks to that. Or if, to put it another way, if you've ever struggled with the problem of evil related to the existence of God, then this book has something to say to you. Now, you might not like the answer or may not fully comprehend the answer, but Habakkuk is going to speak and God is going to speak um, regardless. So Habakkuk himself is is on a journey. We mentioned this last week. He's on a journey. Not just what he says is instructive for us, but the journey he takes. It's not just what is recorded that's helpful, but kind of walking this road to see uh, how Habakkuk sort of evolves over time. You could put it a number of ways, but over the course of three chapters, he moves from worry to worship, uh, from confusion to confession, from fear to faith, from protest to to praise, you could put that a number of different ways. I found a summation of the book this week that I thought was helpful that I didn't locate last week. This author said, in the midst of rampant wickedness, chaos, and upheaval, in summary, in trying times, trusting the God of unshakable justice enables his people to live with patience and with joy. Hopefully by the time we get to the book, you'll, you'll be able to see that summation come uh, to life. Uh, because Habakkuk, he definitely lived in a time of rampant evil, both within the people of God and from the surrounding nations of the people of God. As a reminder, uh, Habakkuk does not come on the scene in a, in a great time in biblical uh, history. God's people are in a bit of disarray. Just when it looked like things might make a turn for the better, they sort of fall off the proverbial cliff. So by the time we get to this historical point in the Bible where we find Habakkuk, the once prosperous nation of Israel has been divided into two kingdoms, one in the north, one in the south. Northern kingdom has already been sort of wiped away by the Assyrians taken into exile. And who we're talking about here is the southern kingdom of Judah. Okay, That's who's in play here. They got to hold on just a little bit longer. And that was actually they held on longer because of a bit of a, a spiritual reformation that God was doing through a leader named Josiah. But unfortunately, as we looked at last week, Josiah was killed on the battlefield. And as is often the case, good rulers have terrible kids in Scripture. Jehoiakim, Josiah's son, quickly runs the southern kingdom in the ground, at least morally speaking. 
In what we looked at last week in chapter one, it's evident that through Habakkuk, okay, Judah's not in a good spot. Okay, you have words like violence, iniquity, destruction, strife, contention. That's what marked the day. Violence, strife, contention, God's law being ignored, justice perverted, the court system is broken down. In many ways, moral and societal chaos is the scene that Habakkuk is speaking into. And he's struggling with it. He doesn't know what to do with it. He takes his issue to God. He is bold enough to make a complaint to God, actually multiple complaints. Last week, we saw his complaint to God about his own people and about God's lack of response, not just about how wicked God's people had become, but why God wasn't responding. Basically, God, how long are you going to ignore this and why? Two simple but profound questions. How long and why? Well, we're not sure how long Habakkuk was praying for God to respond, but we know that he finally got an answer and it was not one that he liked. So what did God say? What did we learn last week that God said in response? Because God doesn't rebuke him. God doesn't disagree with him. God finally speaks, says, I'm going to do something. You just watch and see. And if things aren't already controversial enough, what is God going to do? He's going to use the cruelest nation to maybe ever exist to punish his own people. So God has been raising up the Chaldeans, better known as the Babylonians, to use as his instrument of judgment. Much like the Assyrians were used to wipe out the northern kingdom, now the Babylonians are going to be used to judge the southern kingdom. And where we pick up today in verse 12 of chapter 1, we get to see how Habakkuk responds to that news. Said it last week when Habakkuk finally got his answer for however long that he was begging God to do something. When he finally got his answer, it was one of those moments. I wish I'd have kept my mouth shut because I really don't like what you said. So with that, we're going to look at how he responds to the news as well as how God responds to Habakkuk's response. Okay, we're going to read from verse 12 of chapter one all the way to verse five of chapter two. So. Verses 12 through 17 of chapter 1, that's Habakkuk's second complaint or his response to what God has finally responded to. And then while uh, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 are God's response to Habakkuk's response. So we're kind of going back and forth here. So let's read it, see what God has in store for us. So picking up in verse 12 of chapter 1, this is the word of God. And this is Habakkuk speaking. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them, Babylon, as a judgment. And you, O Rock, have established them, the Babylonians, for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, the Babylonians, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. 
And the Lord responds, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that you may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. All right, you know, um, I think it's safe to say that, that like Habakkuk, we, we probably want to hear from God on a few things. Um, if you just think about the last two years, I think we could frame a lot of questions like Habakkuk towards God. God, why, why covid God, why this natural disaster or that natural disaster? God, why politicians? Why persistent racial issues? Why mass shootings? Why rampant crime? Why is Russia at war with Ukraine? Why extreme inflation? Why this? Why that? A lot of questions we'd like to pose to God about why is it this way and where are you and exactly what are you doing? We need to keep in mind we may not like the answer if we were to receive it. Or the answer may simply be, I'm God, you are not, trust me. Similar to the answer that Habakkuk gets, if you were to sum it up. Sometimes the answer we get only prompts more questions, if you're like Habakkuk here. And what we just read, God does provide an answer to Habakkuk's second complaint. And in a couple weeks, we'll see how Habakkuk responds again to that. He responds well by the end of this when it's clear, even when it's clear that God's not going to sugarcoat the answer or maybe say exactly what he wants him to say. But Habakkuk eventually is going to respond well. But for now, I want to consider just this particular section. So let's kind of isolate this a bit. Okay, I'm going to look at it in several context, but let's just look at this section, his second complaint and God's response. And I want to glean from it how What can we learn from this about how we might live when things aren't going well? How can we live when things aren't going well, when things aren't getting better, when they may never get better? We don't know when they'll get better. You know, we live under the assumption, I was thinking about this week, how we live under the assumption, I know I do, that the trajectory of nations of the world is that things will continue to get better, right? We advance, we progress It's the whole idea behind being a progressive, maybe. You're going to progress and develop and technology and ideas and and things will just get better and better. There's just one problem with that. History. History has a problem with that. It tends to prove otherwise. If you disagree, okay, go turn on the news. We're We're a pretty advanced society in a pretty advanced world. Does it seem like things are getting better? Does it seem like we're progressing? With this reality, how do we live? How does Habakkuk help us to know how to live? What do we do when we are confused, perplexed, concerned, worried about the way things are going, and wondering what God is doing? That's what I think this section in Habakkuk teaches us. That's the question I think this section answers for us. So, here's here's the outline for today. If the question is, how are we going to live When things aren't going well and we don't know what God is doing, we don't understand why. If that's the question, there's a two-part response that Habakkuk helps us with. We live in truth 
and we live by faith. We live in truth and we live by faith. So if you could condense the question and say, how do we live in truth and by faith? That's what we get from the example of Habakkuk and the response of God, or at least the beginning of the response of God, because he continues uh, next week. So we're going to take those one at a time. Got some sub points under each one of them that will be on the screen or I'll give them to you as we go. First, let's look at how we live in truth. OK, so the question is, how do we live in confusing, troubling, chaotic times, suffering, whatever it may be, whether it's personal in your life or whether it's global or national or in your community? When you look out and there's strife, trouble, hardship, suffering and you don't know what's going on, you don't know why, and you can't understand why God's not doing something about it, how do you live? Okay, that's the question. First, you live in truth. So you think about Habakkuk's world. It's shaking. Okay, it is shaking. It seems there's maybe a lack of confidence, maybe a lot of confusion. He's waking up every morning. If he had the news, he's turning on the news and he's seeing story after story of societal chaos. And he is he's just going to God, begging God to respond. God, you got to do something about this. As we just said, as we looked last week, God finally responds, but not to Habakkuk's liking. So Habakkuk is shook even more, to say the least. But how he responds this second time, his second complaint is a master class in how godly people should respond when they are shook. Okay, it is a master class. In a way, when the ground you are on doesn't seem solid, Habakkuk's going to show us how to find solid ground. And though Habakkuk is about to complain for a second time, He's going to do he's going to do it very well. Okay, this is the way to complain. He's going to go stand on the firm ground of God's character. Okay, the ground is shaking. He's not sure what's going on. He's going to step back on the solid foundation of God's character. And he's going to help us to see how to do this. He's going to show us what it looks like to make a biblical complaint and to do so standing on God's character. So meaning you're looking at how the situation at hand doesn't align with God's character and therefore God should act and you are leaning on that character to 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 help you to navigate it. That's what he's doing, okay? He's going to go back to the character of God as the basis of his complaint and say everything I see doesn't align with who you are. So that's why I'm complaining. So I'm going to go back to that, but I'm also going to lean on that and trust in that in the midst of my perplexity and my confusion. So let's see what Habakkuk stands on. What sort of truth do we see him living in? What truth about God in particular is Habakkuk standing on? Five very deep truths covered way too quickly. Okay, Five very deep truths covered way too quickly. They're all on the screen. First, Habakkuk affirms that God is eternal. God is eternal. Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? Or are you not eternal? Are you not the ruler of history? Did you not create history? Do you not exist outside of history? Habakkuk is affirming God as the eternal one whose throne exists outside and above all of history. He reigns eternally. He is not subject to history. Here's how John MacArthur said it in response, said in response to this. He said, you could feel the ground getting more solid as Habakkuk said this. There's nothing more reassuring, nothing more consoling, nothing more helpful 
than in the midst of a time of oppression, when confused by what's going on in the world, when your mind is boggled by the happenings of the day, there's nothing more wonderful than to stand back on solid ground and say one thing I know. My God is eternal. What do you mean? My God is outside of the flux of history. My God was around before history started and my God will be around well after history is over. Basically, my God rules. Therefore, I'm okay. Somehow I'm good because God is eternal. My God was before it all. My God will be after it all. So he affirms that he believes in the God over history. But this also affirms that God sees things like he doesn't see them. When he says God is eternal, he's also saying God's got a different perspective than I do. If he's eternal, then he can see it from a different vantage point than I can. So I may be confused, but God sees this clearly even if I can. I said it last week. It's like we look at the world. We don't think about this, but It's as if we're looking at the world through a rolled up newspaper or that little cardboard center in the middle of your paper towels. We have a bit of tunnel vision. Okay, we only see so much, even if we think we have a wide angle lens. God sees it all. Okay, beginning, end, present, future, past. Habakkuk is standing on the ground of the eternality of God. But he keeps going. Doesn't just affirm God is eternal. Number two, he lives with the truth that God is holy. Looking at, at evil this is what he's saying. I'm looking at evil in my own nation. And you've told me to look up God at the evil of other nations. There's just evil everywhere. I'm living in it. There it is out there. But I know this to be true, God. You're holy. You're, you're not evil. You are holy. Verse 12 again. Oh, Lord, my God, my holy one. And then you could add verse 13 to this. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Habakkuk is perplexed by the wedding together of the holiness of God and the evil that surrounds him. And the evil that he knows exists in Babylon that God says is going to come take them over. You know, there are um, there were other pagan gods that were known to be holy, meaning they were they were other. They were not flesh. They were other in some sense. But Isaiah takes that word and adds so much to it. Okay, in terms of what Isaiah says about God's holiness, there's a there's a there's an otherness, but there's also a perfect moral purity. There's also an unchangeableness to it. Okay, His holiness was unchanging. As one commentator notes, God cannot distance himself even for the blink of an eye from his holiness. This is what Habakkuk knows about God. This is why he's so perplexed. Not just at God's inaction in Judah and the evil that's going on there, but how he would be able to use an evil nation to punish his people. As things unfold, we'll see how we'll see God's response to Habakkuk. For now, I just want us to see the ground that he's standing on. I just want us to see that that truth that Habakkuk is living in amidst confusion. He's living in the truth that both God, that God is both eternal and that God is holy. You might look at it like this. Habakkuk is recalling the truth to mind that caused him to be perplexed. In his first complaint, he's just recalling these things to mind. This is why I'm saying these things, God. 
You're eternal and you're holy. Therefore, I'm confused. Number three, God is faithful. Still in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my holy one? We shall not die. Not sure about you, but on the surface, that seems a little out of place. We shall not die. Sounds like Habakkuk's a little arrogant. God, you're going to send Babylon in here. We, we shall not die. Like we're, we're not going to die. You're not going to kill us, right? We're your people. What is Habakkuk helping us to see there? Well, as this point state, Habakkuk is standing on the ground of God's faithfulness because what he does there is he invokes the covenant name of God. You see that word in all caps, Lord. Okay, you see everything's capitalized. Oh, Lord, we shall not die. Habakkuk is leaning on the promises of God concerning his people. He's going back, pulling the covenant name of God in that made covenants with God's people saying, oh, Lord, we will not die. We shall not die. He's leaning, going back all the way to the patriarchs, to Abraham and saying, Lord, you made these promises. And then you made promises to Israel and Exodus and Deuteronomy. And you made promises to the house of David and second Samuel. Oh, Lord, we shall not die because you promised. God has an everlasting covenant with Israel. God, you promised that we would be a great nation, that other nations would come to know you through us. He's leaning on Genesis 17. What God said to Abraham in that covenant, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. He's leaning on Second Samuel 7, where God said to David, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is Habakkuk saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, God, you're not going to completely destroy us because you're faithful. Not because we're special, but because you're faithful. Babylon is not, cannot ultimately wipe us off the earth. Not because we're special, but because you're, you're faithful. You got promises to keep. It's not just wishful thinking by Habakkuk. It's not somehow just thinking, well, just positive thinking. Well, it's going to work out. It's just going to get better. This isn't going to go as bad as I think. He's diving back into the deep pool of the promises that God made to his people and essentially saying, I don't get exactly what's going on. And I don't know how this is going to work out. But you promised that somehow it's going to work out. I know you did. It's God's character. You're, you're, you're not going to allow... You're not, you're, you're, your promises are not going to be violated. Okay, It can't ultimately be the case that we would no longer exist. Come what may, God is faithful. Back, it's leaning on that. He also affirms this when he refers to God as the rock there at the end of verse 12. So both Lord and rock evoke feelings of permanence and stability. Okay, the rock was the protector of the covenant people. You see this applied to Christ in the New Testament. He's referred to as the rock. You take all of this together that Habakkuk is saying here and the New Testament equivalent would be God, you said our eternity is secure. Okay, Peter wrote that down for us, said that can't nobody can touch that. Okay, you said you would never leave us or forsake us. Jesus told us that before he left. You said you are a protector. Okay, you're going to send a comforter. God, we've got the book of Revelation. You wrote the end down and handed it to us. So therefore, no matter what happens, ultimately this doesn't win. 
Living in truth looks like standing on the fact that God is eternal, God is holy, and God is faithful. Number four, we see Habakkuk take another step on solid ground, and he affirms that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Verse First in verse 12, he talks about how God has ordained the Babylonians. Then he refers to them as him as having established, so ordained and established the Babylonians. So he even affirms God's sovereignty through recognizing that God has raised up the Babylonians. God is sovereignty in action. Not one single thing in the world happens outside the sovereign will of God. He is in absolute control. Not one thing happens that he could not stop. Not one thing happens that he doesn't somehow allow. He is God Almighty. That's how one commentator put it. He said, international relations are understood to be always under the sovereignty of God. World history does not take place by chance, according to the scriptures, nor are human beings ever the sole effectors of it. Human actions result in particular events, to be sure, but human actions are always also accompanied by God's effective actions as he works out his purposes. Again, we see why Habakkuk is perplexed. He knew that God controlled History And he worked his will among the nations. And now he's hearing that his will among the nations is to bring the evil nations to destroy his nation. Habakkuk doesn't step in here and say, God, I guess you've lost control. I guess you've lost control. He steps in and affirms that even now, God, you're in control. Habakkuk is struggling with the truth, but he's still leaning on it. He's perplexed by it, but he's still leaning on it. Amidst chaotic confusion at the injustice in the world, Habakkuk affirms that God is completely and utterly sovereign. He does not see God asleep at the wheel and history seemingly taking the car off course. He looks at utter moral decay and says, God, you're sovereign. So we see through Habakkuk that God is eternal, holy, faithful, and sovereign. And finally, we see that God is just. God is just. Both of Habakkuk's complaints, both the one before us today and the one we looked at last week in verses 1 through 4, a major issue for Habakkuk is injustice. But why? Why is that a major issue for him? Because he knows that God is perfectly just. Injustice doesn't accord with a God of justice. This is probably the one characteristic he doesn't specifically state, but it's the one that's the clearest through implication throughout the entire book. Habakkuk's major issue has to do with the fact that God is a God of justice, but yet there's so much injustice around him. Therefore, justice is not being upheld. Spelled out vividly here in verses 13 through 17. Why do you idly look at traitors? Aren't you just? Why remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous? Aren't you just, God? Why is this happening? Then he uses a pretty intense illustration. He likens God's people as well as other nations that the Babylonians are conquering. He likens them to fish. He talks about how the Babylonians have easily gathered them up in their nets and rejoiced at this. History says that when the Babylonians would take people captive, that they would literally put hooks through people's mouths and put them in a line connected together. So there could be some illustration there, some allusion to that. 
He takes it a step further in verse 16 and basically says, God, they're worshiping their own might. They're so easily destroying other nations that they're worshiping that fact. Look how easy we have it. It says they live in luxury and ease based on what they're taking from the other nations. And in verse 17, he sort of tosses this directly back to God. Are you just going to let them keep fishing? Just cruelly killing nations forever with no mercy? God, you're just. Are you not going to respond to this injustice? I thought what your own people were doing was a violation of justice, but that's much worse. Like, we're pretty good in relation to them. Again, the one characteristic he doesn't mention specifically, he states the loudest. Justice in your own nation is being perverted, God, but not to the degree that the Babylonians pervert it. I'm standing on your justice, God. I'm standing right here making my complaint and trusting that you will respond. I wanted you to judge them. I wanted justice in Judah. I most definitely want justice in Babylon. That's where I'm standing. You know, I I said last week, there's a difference between grumbling and groaning, biblically speaking. God often rebukes grumbling. But receives groaning. Habakkuk is groaning here. Okay. Habakkuk is, isn't, he's not pulling away from God in his complaint. He's leaning into who God is to justify his complaint. You're, you're, you're eternal. You're holy. You're too pure to look at evil. You're faithful to your word. You are a rock. You are a sovereign Lord. You are perfectly just in all your ways. Therefore, I'm groaning about what's taking place. I know truth about you and I'm not living in it. I'm not living in a time that seems to affirm truth about you. But I believe it. I affirm who you are even if I can't at the moment square it with what's happening. As one pastor said, this is not a weak faith that Habakkuk has or a sinful faith. But it is at this moment a confused faith and a grieving faith. It's a good term. It's a grieving faith. Just think about it. In the face of something we cannot get our minds around. Suffering and chaos and decay and evil that we just can't seem to grasp. That we would have a grieving faith in God. That we would be able to go to God and say, you're eternal. You you see this from a vantage point. I cannot see it. You're holy. You're you're, You're just perfect. And I can't understand how that squares with this. You're faithful. I know this doesn't win. I know this situation does not win. You're faithful. There is something coming where that wins that is ultimate here. You're sovereign. You're in control here, even if I can't see it. And you're just. You're going to set all things right. Habakkuk doesn't assess the situation and deny God's character. He affirms God's character to justify his complaint. This is how he serves as a model, just par excellence here on how to respond to moral chaos, suffering, evil in the world. How do we respond when things don't, when things go south, when we're not sure if they're going to improve, when we can't make sense of it, when the ground beneath us is shaking? What do we do? 
we step back on the solid, immovable ground of God's character. I said last week, when things aren't going well, we don't need less of God. We need more of God. I want you to take note of this. Think about that idea of when things are going south and we don't know why, that we don't need less of God, we need more of God. I want you to take note of this. Habakkuk is certainly throughout this book learning more about God. Okay, He's going to learn more about God. But right now, at the beginning, he's bringing to bear what he already knows about God. So don't miss that he was prepared for what he's walking through. Okay, A crisis may help you to know God more deeply, but knowing God more deeply will prepare you for the crisis and sustain you through it. Waiting on a crisis to learn about God is, is much like waiting on the game to do conditioning. Like The game's not going to go well. The marathon's not going to go well. Don't don't wait on the crisis. Don't wait on the, the moment to get in the game before you, you learn about God. Be equipped with who God is in preparation for what is to come. Okay. If the question before us is how are we going to live when things aren't going well, and we don't understand why, if that's the question, part one of the answer is we must live in truth. Part two, as mentioned earlier, is that we're to live by faith. Live in truth and live by faith. So one of uh, the oldest Christian books outside of the Bible is something known as the Didache. Okay, just means the teaching collection of teachings from the early uh, church. In it, there are several chapters about two opposing ways to live. And in one of those chapters, we get this line. There are two ways, one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between the two. Kind of stating the obvious there. Which implies you need to choose wisely which way you go. Okay, There's a way of life and a way of death. You need to choose wisely. Which way are you going to go? No third way. Just two. Life, death. Okay, Road, walking with Jesus to heaven. Road without Jesus, going to hell. If we could put it that way. Jesus makes similar statements. Which would be where the Didache got that chapter from. What would Jesus say? Are you building on rock? Are you building on sand? Are you a wise or foolish builder? Okay. Are you on the wide road or the narrow road? So Jesus would have sayings like this over and over. Proverbs, okay, could have pulled this from Proverbs, says that there's a way that seems right to man. But where does it lead? Death. Okay. Proverbs say there's a way that leads, that seems right to man, but leads to death. This is the truth God spells for, out for us in uh, his second response to Habakkuk here. Okay, in chapter in verse one of chapter two, Habakkuk is now finished, steps back, basically says he's going to wait, see how God responds. And notice this an interesting line, probably maybe I'll hit it next week. But he says, uh, so I verse one, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he God will say to me. And in this last line and what I will answer concerning my complaint, it's almost like he knows this isn't over. I'm dealing with God. I know his character. I'm likely wrong in some way. So I'm going to have to have some sort of comeback. And we know uh, in a couple of weeks that's going to be the song uh, that he writes at the end. But I thought that was interesting. That's a good way to approach God humbly. If you got a complaint to God, even if it's on the solid ground of his character, you go, I'm likely wrong in some way here. 
And I'm going to acknowledge that after you tell me how I'm wrong. So that, that's there's probably a whole nother uh, sermon there. All right. Verse two starts God's response or the yeah, starts his response. We'll get more of it next week. And what does uh, what God says sets up that contrast that's outlined in that book, uh, the Didache, death or life. OK, and it all revolves around verse four. So verse four is kind of the crux here. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright with him within him. And we see from the rest of the book, that's the way of death. Then he says, but the righteous shall live by faith, by his faith. And that's the way of life. Okay, that one verse sets up that two ways to go, death or life. We're going to look at each of those for a moment and hopefully show that living by faith is the preferred way. First, you have the path to death, the path to death. Based on verse four, it seems that the defining characteristic of the unrighteous man is pride. His soul is puffed up. He believes solely in himself. So we saw from Habakkuk's description there at the end of verse one that uh, Babylon worshipped its own power. Okay, they got everything they thought they needed through their power. Therefore, they worshipped themselves and their power. Now. So that's what Babylon did. They're conquering nations. It's really easy. Look at us. We're great. We we just catch them like fish. We loot. We got everything. We're we're prosperous. And obviously, there's a lot about that that's sadistic and evil and criminal. Okay, and that that may not be us. Okay, we're not conquering nations and destroying them. But there's still truths here for the modern person. Okay, we. We may not realize how often we worship ourselves. Okay, be nice if we had like a light or a buzz, you know, kind of like that game where you're, what was it, the doctor game where you got the operation. There it is. That was, I was losing that one for a minute. Where every time you worshiped yourself, that buzz would happen. You get buzzed because you would just spend all week just getting buzzed. Okay, we likely often think or maybe say, I provide for myself. Okay, I've done pretty well for myself. Look at all that I have, particularly in our context, feel some level of security based on who I am, whether it's my health, my stature, my intellect, my job, my savings or whatever it may be. My family, I'm not sure. I'm going to find some level of comfort in that. And we may not build a statue of ourselves and bow down and worship ourselves and sing songs about ourselves. But we're basically doing the same thing that the Babylonians were doing. Our soul is puffed up. We're full of pride and full of trust in us. Based on the context of this book and the rest of Scripture, that's the way of death. You stay tuned for next week and you'll see the outcome for the Babylonians. Here's the deal. And as I've mentioned, what Habakkuk is complaining about is God's lack of justice. And now he's complaining specifically about how Babylon might go Unpunished, And what God is saying in verses two and three and then in more detail or starting to say in verses two and three and in more detail in verses six through 20 is that judgment will come to the Babylonians as well. They are going to be judged to back it. I understand your complaint. I agree with it. It's coming for the proud, for those that don't think they need God, for those that essentially worship themselves. Justice comes one day. And this is where I don't know about you. I'm even I'm even putting the sermon together and I have the gut reaction. Look, I I get it. Babylon punished. Okay, 
I get that they should be punished. If I'm okay, if God brings down justice on Nazis, if he punishes Russia or North Korea or the Taliban, I'm, I'm okay with that. But I'm not sure I can be lumped in or, or just the common person can be lumped in that same category. Like surely Joe, the atheist at work, that's a really nice guy is not in that camp. However, this is where the Bible disagrees with my gut reaction and your gut reaction to say we're not not everybody's in that camp. Right. The Bible would take everyone who doesn't know Jesus, everyone who doesn't love Jesus, everyone who doesn't follow Jesus, everyone who has not been saved by Jesus. And he would put them in that camp. That's where the Bible would put them. Here's how the Bible describes the very best person on earth who has rejected Jesus. Enemy, ungodly, dead, not righteous, worthless, deserving of wrath. That's the description of the very best person on earth who has rejected Christ. And the list just keeps going. Or we could put it the way the late R.C. Sproul said it. He was asked that age old question that kind of fits in this. He says, why do bad things happen to good people? So somebody asked R.C. that. Why do bad things happen to good people? To which he said, well, when I meet a good person, I'll let you know. So, no, not everyone was as heinous or did the things that the Babylonians did. But the prideful person trusting in their degrees or their wealth or their intellect, or themselves, or whatever you want to put in that category, that person is in the same camp awaiting the same future, which is the judgment of God. It's a path that leads to death. Everyone is on that, on that path apart from Jesus. Take note of this as well about this path, and this is a whole other sermon, but take note how unsatisfying it is described by God to be. Verse five says that wine, which could be translated as wealth, says it's a traitor, an arrogant man who never has enough. His greed is as wide as she like death. He has never enough. Simple point. The proud are never satisfied. No matter what you acquire, no matter what you accomplish, no matter what you have, it will never be enough. There's a lesson that I've been taught over and over and over in life that I, it, it just does not seem to stick. So I'm, I'm 40 now. I'll just say I'm in the middle here for everybody that's out here. And I've been taught this lesson more times than I can remember, and it just will not take. I have this erroneous notion that I will be happier and life will be better if I could just make this tweak or this change or get this item. I believe that. And every time, if it doesn't completely not satisfy when I originally get it, it fades pretty quickly. And then the situation changes and I'm back to discontentment again. So it starts, there's some level of discontentment. And I identify that if I'll make this change or get this item, then suddenly contentment comes in. And at best, there's that partial superficial time of I'm content. Really happy right now. This is great. But then it fades. That thing was not as great as I thought or it requires maintenance. 
You know, it costs more money or that change was not as good as I thought. What do they say? Grass is always greener on the other side. Somebody at my work says, nope, just grass, just more grass. That's all it is. It's not greener. It's just grass. And it may die and it may have weeds. It probably does. Okay. Am I the only one who has this problem? Am I alone on this? Just me? Okay. I'll just stand alone in that. Verse 5, I think, is one of the, easily one of the more verifiable truths in Scripture. It really is. Easily one of the more verifiable truths in Scripture. That it's never enough. You'll never have enough. I think outright denial is the only way around the truth of verse 5. So there's the path to death, which essentially comes through prideful self-sufficiency. Which is contrasted with our next point, the route to life. The route to life. If living by faith is part of the answer when faced with how to live in confusing and troubling times that you don't understand, then what is the path there? Okay, What is the path? According to what God says in verse 4, it's summarized this way. The righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, we'll get to that phrase in just a minute. But I think God sort of outlines this path before he even gets to that verse. He kind of says, I want to show you what the path looks like in terms of the righteous living by faith. According to verse two, the route to life comes through listening to God's word. First and foremost, listen to God's word. God tells Habakkuk to write the vision Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. God wants everyone to know this. This is not just for Habakkuk. He's saying, you write this down. This is bulletin board material. Get it out. Broadcast it widely. Because here's what's going to happen. Easy principle there. When things are going south, who do you listen to? God. So, I am... I don't even have to talk about you because I can talk about myself here. I am so prone when the next thing pops up on the news or whatever is ongoing escalates or it changes or I'm just kind of checking in on it. I just I'm going to pick a commentator like what I want this commentator to make me feel better about this or to reinforce my view because this commentator is going to say I'm right and therefore I feel better because he's reinforcing my view or whatever. You know, if I hear about inflation or the economy downturning, I'm going to find the one article that says it's not that bad. It's going to be great. Don't worry about it. And then I feel better. My first step is not to God. I need to listen to God. We will be tempted to take our cues from everyone and everything but God when things aren't going well. And certainly God may speak through godly people. So that doesn't mean like ignore everybody. Okay, God works By his word, through his word, in his people. So understand, if you have godly people around you, go, what do you think? And see if they have something godly to say. But we need to listen to God. And where do we go to hear from God? He's written it down for us. He's written it down for us. He's given us Habakkuk, for instance. So the path involves listening to God. It also involves waiting on God. Or to put it another way, trusting whatever God's timing is. Verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. A pastor friend of mine said, short-term circumstances provide a poor measurement of the long-term character of God. Short-term circumstances provide a poor measurement of the long-term character of God. 
Nothing could be truer than the fact that our preferred timing is not God's timing. Our preferred timing is rarely ever God's timing. I have no authority whatsoever to tell you that God will act in a certain time frame or on your timetable. He may not alleviate your situation in this life. He may not alleviate a lot of situations in this life. But I do have authority to tell you that God will ultimately act. As we see here in Habakkuk, wait for it. It will surely come. And this leads up to God saying, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Maybe a central truth, sort of a highlighted truth in this entire book. It's quoted a few different times in the New Testament in a few different ways with a few different emphasis on it. Okay, there's an emphasis in the New Testament, particularly in Romans 1 and Galatians 3, that using this verse to say that people are saved by grace through faith. And then this verse is quoted, Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it the righteousness from God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3 adds a dimension and says it's not based on what we do. It's not law observance that we are saved by. It's based on faith and faith alone. And that verse is leverage. You begin to see the the contrast between the, the path to death and the route to life. Death comes through faith in self. Life, as Paul would put it, comes through faith in the gospel. So there's the two ways. Death comes through faith in self. Paul would say life comes through faith in the gospel. What is the gospel? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the place of sinners. For Habakkuk, that was a future promise. For us, that's a past reality. Habakkuk's looking forward. He's trusting in the promises of God. He said, you, you said there would be something forever. We would reign with nations, peoples. He's looking forward. We're looking back going, he died. He rose. All the nations are coming. The path to death is just piled up with all these works okay, that we think are going to do something. They're going to justify us. The route to life is not earned by works, but simply comes through faith. Couldn't These things couldn't be more mutually opposed to one another. Now, there's one other text in New, New Testament text that puts a different emphasis on What Habakkuk is saying here and probably fits best into what God is saying to Habakkuk. And this is from Hebrews. Okay, so in Hebrews 10, the emphasis there is on continually living by faith. In the context of Hebrews 10, the author is speaking to a people who were living in the midst of persecution. They're being plundered. Things are not going well. They're suffering. And the author is saying in Hebrews, remember what God told Habakkuk, the righteous shall live Continually by faith. What is being emphasized there is continuing to trust God and clinging to God's character and his promises, even in the darkest of days. It's an emphasis on enduring faith in difficult times. That's how Hebrews uses Habakkuk. So for Habakkuk, it's a call to live with confident trust that God will judge the Babylonians. For us, it's a call to live with confident trust that Jesus is faithful That he's coming back. That he's going to set all things right. Okay. Here's how one writer summed it up. He said, these texts, talking about Habakkuk and Hebrews, share a common faith 
in the God who has demonstrated the power of love for his people and who promises to act on their behalf in the future. Both texts encourage the believer to live in the confidence of what God has done, believing that God will also be faithful to his promises in the future. Basically, believe who God is, believe what he's done and believe he's going to see it to the end. One more quote, I think, sums this up and I'll land the plane with this. I think this sums this up for the Christian. This writer says, for God's people, for those who are righteous by faith, hardship is not the end of the story. It never ends in pain for the people of God. It never ends in darkness. It never ends in trouble. Devastation never has the last word. Our story doesn't end on Good Friday. The grave is not the end. Sunday is coming. You hear that? It never ends in pain for the people of God. It never ends in darkness. It never ends in trouble. Two questions for us to take home with us. We'll shut it down with this. One for the Christian, one for the non-Christian. For the non-Christian, are you alive by faith? Are you alive by faith? Do you believe you need saving? If so, what do you believe will save you? Jesus or something else? You've been introduced to Jesus. Haven't heard anything, everything about him, but I'd love to tell you more. You believe in Jesus or something else? For the Christian, are you living by faith? Are you living by faith? We, we look around at, at whatever number of things, or I was talking with Kyle yesterday, I was like, what, what plague are we on now? Like, if we're in Exodus, what plague is this? Like, I can't figure out what number we're on. When you look at war, and politics and crime and so much else, what ground are you standing on as a Christian? What are you leaning on if you are confused and perplexed? Are you living in truth and by faith? Where are you going when things don't make sense? That's a good way to put it. Where do you go when you're trying to make sense of all of that or whatever's going on around you? You're living by faith. All right, more to come next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word uh, that is a guide, a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Father, you, you use it to illuminate the way in a world that is perplexing and confusing and just doesn't make sense. When we look at your character, look at the way you've created things. We look out, causes us to ask, where are you and why is this happening? And your word clarifies that for us, that we don't have all the answers, but we can trust the one who does. We may have tunnel vision, but you have full vision. And thank you for opening our eyes to see at least that. So lead us now as we leave this place to apply these truths to our heart, that they would affect our perspective and our lives throughout the week. And I pray we'd be able to gather around your word again next week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.